0: Tonight we continue our study of the Old Testament book of Exodus. God has brought his people out of Israel. God has brought his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt by a series of mighty acts. Now at the foot of Mount Sinai, he is showing them how to live as his special people. This is Exodus 20 verses 1 through 11. You guys can follow along in your pamphlet. I need larger print, sorry. <laughs> And God spoke to all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the, is the Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall not you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant your female servant, or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord... Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy.
1: You guys know that whether you're baking a cake or pursuing um, a special someone, the order that you do things is very important. Um, Some of you guys have found this out the hard way where you go on the first date, and of course, because it's Appalachian, the first date is always. You go to dinner, and then we went out in the parkway. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've been on the parkway many times. I don't know what's happening out there, why the the appeal. But anyway, um, and we just talked for hours, and it was awesome, and it was amazing. And then after the first date, before you've had the second date, you're like, I think this is the one. Um, And you're telling your friends. It's the one, and everyone's really excited, and, um, well, you're really excited. Everyone else thinks you're weird. And then you go on the second day. So, so you're like planning the wedding before the second date, And then the second day, you're like, this person's actually super annoying. Um, and there gets to be some confusion and breakdown in your life. Okay, um, Tim Keller, who I'm, I'm borrowing from tonight, and others get it right when they say the order that we sort of approach God is really important. There's two basic orders that people take when they think about their relationship with God. The vast majority of people all over the world do things in this order. They believe that you believe in God first, number one. Number two, you obey God. And then number three, God accepts you. Does that make sense? Like you believe in whatever like the, the God is that you, that you um, choose to, to serve. Then you, you obey that God or that system. And then if that happens, then, then, uh, then you will be accepted. Then you're part of the kingdom. You're part of that religion. But with Christianity, and I would say with true Christianity, what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the order is actually quite different. We would say first that you believe in Jesus. Yes, that's the, that's the first sort of step in this order. But the second, the second thing in the order is that God accepts you then. When you believe in Jesus, God accepts you unconditionally, and then you obey God. Does that make sense? Instead of believe, obey, be accepted, you believe in Jesus, are accepted fully, And then your obedience to God comes after that. And here's why that matters to you. Because we're talking about the Ten Commandments. And um, the order is really important. And it matters for you because if you base your life on the first order, where it's believe, obey, be accepted, um, your acceptance is always, before God, your acceptance is always based on what you're doing. It's based on your performance to some degree, how well you're behaving. And since you can never actually live up to the ideal that you want to live up to, whether it's the Ten Commandments or whether it's just being the kind of person you want to be, um, since you always mess up, you will find very little joy. You'll find very little rest. And here's the bad part. You will continually judge other people because since you're not doing it good enough, you will need to look at other people that are performing more poorly than you so that you can feel better about yourself. And that's how it works in the first order. But if you take the second order, what I'd say the gospel order, the Jesus order, you obey for completely different reasons. Because if you believe in Jesus, are accepted, and then you obey, you know that your relationship with God is secure before you obey, before your behavior. And so you obey for God, not for yourself. Does that make sense? And you can actually approach other people with forgiveness and gentleness and grace Because you know that you've been accepted despite your behavior, and so you bring other people in, and you have no need to compare yourself with them. And it's really important to get those two orders together before we look at something like the Ten Commandments or God's law. Um... Because you'll completely miss it if you think that a relationship with God has something to do with your behavior, that your relationship is based on how well or how poorly you're keeping these commandments. The whole thing will fall apart for you and it won't make any sense. Jesus tells us that you can summarize all of God's law into two things love God and love your neighbor. Okay, and so tonight what I want to do is I want to look at what does it look like for us to love God? What is the blueprint for a life that is marked by loving God? And I want to look at the second, third, and fourth commandments in the Ten Commandments. And um, the first part is going to be the most sort of dense and long part. Um, and it, it might be a little bit heavy, but just hang with me, okay? So what, what does loving God really look like in the second, third, and fourth commandments? Um, There's a lot we could say. We could spend a whole week on each one. We're not going to, so we're going to kind of fly by. Um, The second commandment. So if you look on your sheet, the second commandment comes there in verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or anything that's uh, a likeness of anything that's on heaven in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Don't bow down to them and serve them. Basically, it's saying don't make idols. Don't worship idols. Um, What is an Idol. Well, an idol in the ancient world, especially, was was something that you would make that represented a god. It was an actual physical object that you would make. And you would worship that little guy, whether it's in your, a shrine in your house or in a temple. And what you're trying to do is to appease this god. And if this god that you were worshiping, this little guy, was happy with you and you did it right, if you manipulated him rightly... Um, then you would get the things that you would want. And if he was displeased with you, you wouldn't get the things you would want. So for example, if you wanted um, a good crop, you wanted a good harvest, you would um, worship an idol of a God that was of agriculture or of rain or of the sun. Does that make sense? If you did it right and that God was happy with you, you would get what you wanted. And if you did it poorly, you wouldn't get what you wanted. If you, if you wanted your, um, to have children or if you wanted your livestock to have offspring, then you would, um, you would work to appease this God to get what you wanted. Now, obviously, you're thinking, okay, this one is easy for me. I, I'm cool with the idols one because I haven't actually carved a little guy and bowed down to him and, and worship him, right? Maybe that's primitive stuff that, like, people do, like, did back then. Or maybe they do in, like, far reaches of the world where they don't have Facebook. But... Um, I don't do those things. Right. I don't believe that if you just manipulate something and you will get the happy life. If you just appease some guy. I mean, sure. Like if the right people are happy with me and accept me, like um, maybe the right friend group or the right frat or the right club or the right grad school admission officer. If they like me and accept me, then like I have a reason to live and otherwise I mean, it's sort of doubtful. Um, But I wouldn't say that it's like, that's like an idol or or anything, right? Um, Or like, yeah, I structure my life to look, sound, and smell a certain way that makes the people around me happy. But I wouldn't say that, like, I'm worshipping them, okay? And like, yeah, like, if I get that internship that I'm hoping for, then I can face my family and not feel like a disappointment or a failure and, like, if I don't get it, then I really don't know if I can face my family. But I wouldn't say, like, I worship that internship or, or anything. I mean, I'm just devoting every bit of my life to it, but I wouldn't call that worship. Um, and maybe you're thinking, like, okay, well, I can, I can see where you're coming from. Um, there are things that I submit my time to and think that if I get them, I'll be happy. But it's not like I actually make an idol of something that's, like, in the sky or on the land or in the water, Right. Um, well, when's the last time that you went a significant amount of time without having cell service or Wi-Fi? Um, and maybe you can't even remember such a t- uh, such a time. Um, it w- that sounds awful. Um, but if you didn't have cell service or Wi-Fi, you weren't able to access. This is going to be a little bit weird. So let's just get weird, okay? Be a little bit weird together. You weren't able to access that thing in the sky, the cloud, or the cell tower. By the way, the cloud isn't really a thing, it's just another computer, just so you know. Um, (laughs) You weren't able to uh, attach to that satellite, or that cell tower, and so you couldn't have the little blue bird, or the little white ghost that floats around in, in the sky and connects your life with everyone around you, right? And when you don't have that, it's not like, oh, bummer, I can't get on Snapchat. It's like, Life is passing me by. Other people are prospering right now, and I can't even connect to it. And I'm dying on the inside. Um, Maybe you make a, a land, like you serve a land god. Like, if I eat the right thing in the right quantity at the right time, I will never get sick. I will always be healthy. Like, my family, we buy half of a grass fed cow. Okay, and we buy organic food and love it. And I think food is wonderful. Eating right is wonderful. Um, but it can become really easy to bow down to it, can't it? Um, oh, you're eating there. Uh, you're, you're, eating, you're eating that. And you're eating that much of it. Um, or, of course, there's, there's always the, uh, the water-based gods, water-soluble gods. Um, like, if I can just get to the beach... Or if I can just get to Lake Norman, then I can breathe. But I have to have the enough tan, right swimsuit, you know, right crokies, the perfect tank top. Then I can breathe. Then I can be there. And then everything will be okay. And the amount of time that we spend, the amount of energy that we spend, doesn't it feel like that's not just stuff in your life, but stuff that you actually are bowing down to and serving at some points? Does it ever begin to feel like, You're just trying to appease people and things so that you can just breathe and they'll get off your back? Um, Does it ever feel like the good life, you're serving the good life instead of the good life serving you? Um, Those things are idols. They're real easy. Um, Anne Lamott, who is a Christian thinker and writer, I love this quote. She says, I think perfectionism is based on the obsessive belief that if you run carefully enough hitting each stepping stone just right, you won't have to die. If you run carefully enough and you hit each stepping stone, everything will be okay and it will never fall apart for you. Um, those are idols. But the thing is, you don't have to like use an idol to worship a foreign god. You can actually use an idol to worship the real god, the true god, the god of the Bible. Um, in a couple of weeks, we'll see that Israel, God's people, build a golden calf. Okay? And they—they're not worshiping a foreign god. They're worshiping their god, the true god, the, the living god. But they use this golden calf to do it. Now, the golden calf shows you something about God, namely that He's strong. Okay, that this bull shows you that God is strong, but it doesn't show you the whole picture of God. Of course, a bull can show God's strength, but it can't show His kindness or His justice or His truthfulness. Sometimes we boil God down to the parts that we like about Him. And then we choose to worship that instead. Um, Maybe we do that by focusing on the parts of God's character that we like. You know, I like the loving parts. I like the parts when we're talking about loving our neighbor and all that. But once it gets to the whole, like God's like holiness, I'm uncomfortable. And so I just don't even read that. I don't talk about that. Don't focus on that. um, Don't tell my friends about that. Or we pick and choose what to accept from the Bible. I like parts of it. Not in the parts of it. Um, to me, it's most evident when we, when we think about our expectations for our lives. We think, okay, what does God want for my life? What is, what is, what is God supposed to do in my life? Well, um, when I go to worship, I'm supposed to always be uplifted. And if I'm not uplifted when I go to church, then something's wrong. Things aren't going the way they should be. And I, I didn't really get anything out of it. Or you're the flip side that, like, doesn't like that person. You're like, when I go to worship, I have to understand a complicated concept. And if they don't give me a complicated concept to understand, then they weren't feeding me. So then I I, I leave. Um, Maybe uh, you think God will always give me friends that affirm me and are there for me and know what's wrong without me even telling them. Um, And if they don't do that, then I will complain or push them away or get new friends. Or this is this is pretty common. You're like, I'm a Bible reading person. Maybe that's you. And you're like, when I read the Bible, it will always give me wisdom and strength for the day. And if it doesn't give me wisdom and strength for the day, why did I even freaking get up in the first place? And so you just push it aside and just don't do it anymore because it's not you're not getting from it what you hoped to get from it. Look. Idol worship, whether it's of a foreign God or whether it's of the God of the Bible, is a form of manipulation. If I manipulate the right things the right way and turn all the dials the right way, I will get what I want. I will be happy and I will be successful. Um, And this is related to the third commandment that's on your sheet there. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What what does that mean? Some of your translation, if you're looking at another Bible, might say misuse God's name. That kind of gets at it. Um, In the, in Hebrew, when it says vain or vanity, that word is for like a vapor or a mist. Um, it's saying don't treat God's name like a vapor, like smoke, like something that doesn't have any weight or, or, or thickness or density to it. Um, excuse me, revere God, treat God's name. Like it has honor and weight and dignity because right. A name is more than just a name. Like your name is your reputation. If you ever had a minor run in with the law in high school or in college, um, it's, there's a high probability, considering the demographic makeup of the room, that your parents, if that happened to you, fought to get it removed from your record. Right? Like, maybe nobody wants to nod because then they would, this would be you you would be that person. Um, <clears throat> they fought to get it off your record, right? Because they didn't want it to be on your name. They didn't want that to follow you, be part of, your, of your, your record somewhere, like in some file somewhere. And so they worked hard to what? To clear your name. Right? Does that make sense? Someone accuses you of something, you want to clear your name. That's giving us a sense of what it means when God says not to take his name in vain. We're talking about who God is, what his reputation is, what his record is. Um, I knew a girl, uh, we'll call her Martha, and um, it's not her real name. Um clearly, um, Martha's a lovely name. Anyway, uh, and in high school, she was seeing a guy, and the guy broke up with her because she wouldn't have sex with him. This was the story, okay? And um, he started seeing someone else. So she took pictures of herself that were sort of compromising, and she sent them to the guy hoping to win his um, attention back. And uh, it didn't work. And some of you guys, especially some of you girls, know this, what this is like. He forwarded them to his friends instead. And they forwarded them to their friends. And soon the whole high school had her pictures. Um, and what she did was she became a huge stoner. Um, and the reason why was because, and this is what she told me, she, that she would rather be known as Martha the Stoner than Martha the Slut. That, that was her, her perspective because someone had devalued her name to such a degree that she said I'll just I just need to make a lateral move to some other lesser devalued person I'll be more the the pothead Her name was devalued God is calling us to actively honor his name and look when we use God's name flippantly or like as a curse word or, or whatever that that devalues his name it shows what we really think about him, right? Like, like, oh, I didn't mean anything by it. It's like, well, yeah, that this sort of gets to the point. You didn't, God's name didn't mean very much to you. But also, this means, this, this is what the, the third commandment means, and I think this is more appropriate to us. The third commandment means that we're not to attach God's name to things that he hasn't specifically endorsed, okay? This is about to be politically, Associated, but not any kind of a political endorsement or statement or whatever. This is just a bit of my personal history. Um, I have had like several moments in my life where I was super into one political uh, agenda or another. 2008 election was my like vicious Tea Party phase. Um, this is a little embarrassing for me, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> this is the trust tree. We can all uh, we can be in the nest here. Um, I was super sold out to, like, conservative politics. And conservative politics is fine. There's room for a wide spectrum of political views in God's kingdom, okay? But I recall one night talking with a friend at a party. And the guy, he wasn't, he wasn't a Christian guy. And um, we had very different political views on things. And it was an election year. And that's when President Obama was running the first time. And uh, so anyway, it was a big deal. But I remember saying to him... This is so embarrassing. Um, it would be unfaithful for me as a Christian to bow the knee to an expanding government. Um, God calls me to fight for individual liberty and limited government. Like, you can see like in how you get there, right? It's like, okay, you're not supposed to worship anybody else. But what I was doing, like, everyone's looking at me like they like smelled a fart or something. Um... um we can have a robust debate about American conservative politics and the merits of it, and that's great. But basically what I did was I attached God's name to my political agenda and said, God says it must be so. When in fact God never says anything about limited government and the merits thereof. If you, if you believe in limited government, that's great. But what happened was it made me an insufferable person to be around. I was like, like, really, my wife was like, you are going to die. Um, We were just married, too. I mean, like, we made it through that year. We'll make it another 40. Um, I couldn't think critically. I couldn't love other people unless they agreed with me. Because I had connected God's name with my political views. And look, the third commandment says, don't set an agenda and stamp God's name on it like the, the like the name at the end of a political like commercial this this you know ad was endorsed by such and such god sets the agenda for the world you understand and then he calls us to line up with him not the other way around so another anne lamott quote i love it she says you can safely assume you created god in your own image when it turns out god hates all the same people you do um it look listen this is the point if god can't contradict you um. then you're not in a love relationship with God. Maybe you are one of those lucky few that had like a middle school boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, middle school girlfriends and boyfriends are great because you can like be FBO and you can like hold hands at lunch and have all like the benefits of like having a boyfriend or girlfriend, but none of the like responsibility. Like, and what would happen is like you don't really talk, right? You just like hold hands at school and then you go home. Like, um, but like as soon as the other person's like, "Hey, you need to spend time with me," and you're like, "I got soccer practice," or "I'm hanging out with my girls." Like, I'm sorry, um, and you you break up, right? Because you were never in like a love relationship. You were just in it to, like, get the, the, the you know, the um, some kind of weird affirmation of having a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And this sounds weird, but again, we're being weird. Do you want God to be your middle school boyfriend? <laughs> um, I hope since you're laughing, the answer is no. Um, do you want God to be, like, a nice decoration on your life? Um That like validates your need to be affirmed, but never contradicts you. Um, Whether you're like a progressive person or a conservative person, um, Jesus should make you very uncomfortable with your sort of political, like deeply rooted sense of self. Um, Whether you're a straight person or you're on the spectrum, um, Jesus should contradict how and why you use sex. There are a lot of people in this room that think I'm straight So, like, I have less sexual baggage than my friends in the LGBT community. And if that is you, then you haven't really, like, looked at Jesus. (laughs) Because he has a lot to say about how straight people use sex. A lot. Um, And none of us come clean to Jesus. Whether you're a saver or a spender... Jesus challenges how you see money and how you use money. It's just how he is. If you're in a love relationship with Jesus and he can't contradict you, you've made him in your in your image. And you're serving a false God. Look, the bit of yarn that weaves through each of God's commandments is the, the commandments is this: You are not God. Um, yet, since we think we can be God, we're destroying ourselves. The original temptation in the Garden of Eden from Satan was. If you do this, you will be like God. And ever since then, we've been thinking, I'm like God, I can set the rules. I can make God do what I want. Um, When God gives me success and happiness based on how I define those terms, we're good. If not, we're not so good. Um, We worship the parts of God that make us feel good. We use his name to endorse our agenda. We want to be God. And the Bible calls that pride And C.S. Lewis says, pride is the root of every sin. That's what he says. He says, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Every sin flows from wanting to be God and trying to function as if you are God. And look, Being God is a lot of work. Um, If you're the one who's responsible for your own happiness, security, success, future, then you don't have time to rest. Um, In the fourth commandment, God commands his people to rest, to take one day in seven, to stop the striving and the moving and the working and the toiling, and to stop and worship and to rest have you ever noticed, and you will notice this more and more as you get older, that you don't have to be told to work. Like, you, like Some of you guys know this from your parents. Like If there was ever like time that was unstructured, work filled that time. And that will be you one day. You have to schedule time off. You don't have to schedule work time. Work just happens. Because honestly, we believe that we have to run carefully and hit each stone just right. Your competitor isn't taking a day off, right? Rest is optional. My performance is necessary. So at its core, God's law is telling us, look, you're not God. God is God. And we are like an unfit spacecraft, like reentering Earth's atmosphere, breaking up and burning into pieces because we want to be in control. And look, that was a long way to get to where I want to get right now because, look, I didn't spend all that time working through God's law with us so that we can all feel like we had a spiritual, like, colonoscopy tonight. And, like, that was really painful, but, like, it's what I needed to hear, you know. Um, Which is, like, a weird thing that Christian people do sometimes. Um, I didn't do that so we can all, like, feel, go home feeling terrible about ourselves. I went through all that for one reason. So that you will see how very different Jesus is than us. OK, so if you checked out, check back in. Listen, Jesus is God. He's God, the son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He created everything that exists. OK, he's responsible for everything that exists. He holds the world together and him. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell the creator of all things. And he came to live with us. he was a person, like he became a human being, and he lived with us. He humbled himself. He intentionally gave up power. You are not God, yet you try to be. Jesus is God, and he laid it down. Paul says that even though he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, made himself nothing, and took on the form of a servant. And Jesus always represented God exactly how he is. Whether he was talking to the most influential, rich, spiritual, religious person, or the most inconsequential sinner, think about whoever that person would be on campus, he was always the same with all of them. He never used God's name to get ahead. He never manipulated God's purposes for his own good. The night before Jesus got murdered, he was in a garden, and he wasn't like just hanging out. He was crying and he was weeping and he was so afraid that he was sweating great drops of blood. And you know what he said to God? He had a glimpse. He knew what was coming. That he he was about to be betrayed, tortured, killed and suffer God's wrath. And he said to God, if there is a way for you to take this away, please do it. If If you can let this cup pass from me, please do it. But nonetheless, not my will be done, but yours. He is God and he completely um, deferred his um, he deferred his uh, his uh, agenda and he deferred uh, what he wanted to God. Um, Jesus was said, my food and my drink is to do God's will. And at those moments in his ministry, when he could have gotten the most power and prestige, when people wanted to make him the king. He would withdraw, and he would go away with God, his Father, and escape all that. Look, Listen, Jesus was the most God-dependent person that ever lived on the earth. Um, why? Why would he do that? Jesus did all that so that the people that are tearing ourselves apart, trying to hold our lives together could receive his dependent life as a gift. This is what the Christian faith is all about. If you're like, I don't know what this Christianity thing about, it's this. That Jesus gives you his perfect, obedient life as a gift. If, if, If loving God was an exam, you and I are miserable failures. Jesus aces the exam, and when we're about to turn them in, he erases the names, puts his name on our page, and our name on his page, and turns them in. So that you and me who are idol factories, like we just make idols one after the other, could stand in front of God and be called faithful. That when God sees you in Jesus, he says, you've always been faithful to me and you've never had a God before me. That blasphemers who throw God's name around and we attach it to to whatever we want can be called reverent. We call people who delight in God's honor. So that people who believe we've got to keep on running on our own two feet or else it's all going to fall apart can be called dependent. And look, I hope you can see now why the order matters so much. Because if the order is believe God, obey him, and then he'll accept you, it's over. You never stood a chance. But if the order is believe God, he accepts you in Jesus, then you can obey out of love and thankfulness and gratitude. And look, I'm not 100% sure how that works, to be totally honest. Like, I could give you 20 steps for keeping the third commandment. But I, I don't know exactly what it looks like to obey out of Jesus' grace, but I want to give you one picture. A guy named Dan Colon, he's a painter, he's an artist. I listened to an interview with him, and someone asked him, why should... The average person go and look at paintings in a museum or in a gallery, and he said, "You know, there's no words, but the arts change the world." And he said, "Like, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know at what kind of pace they have their impact. I don't know how, but you know, they seep. And to spend an afternoon doing something like that has no purpose. Really, is important. Do you get what he's saying?" I don't know how looking at this thing changes the world, but it somehow manages to seep out. And when we're looking at Jesus and what he's done and accepting the gift that he gives us, the gift of his obedience to us begins to seep into every decision that we make. And it completely changes how we see obedience. Um, I want to leave you with one line from a hymn. A guy named William Cooper. He has a hymn called Love Constraining to Obedience. And he says, To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child, and duty into choice. he says, Now freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose his ways. And look, there is a coin in the vending machine of your heart that is sitting there and hasn't dropped in yet. And that coin is the one that frees you from thinking, i got to get God to like me, to, to going, Jesus has done it all, and I get to live in joy. Uh, and my prayer for you is, as you look at Jesus perfect, that coin would drop. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, there's much more to say. There's much more on this page. Um, but Lord, we are, are, are desperately sick. We want to know how to rest in you. We want to know how to trust you. We want to know what it looks like for you to, to give us good things. Um, that we're so busy trying to make sure that everything holds together, um, that it almost is impossible for us to trust you. Um, Would you help us see you, Lord Jesus, as one who has kept the law perfectly on our behalf and given it to us as a gift that we might trust in you and so have freedom and joy and love and beauty, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.